Hi everyone, welcome to the Brown History Podcast. My name is Essen and you are listening to episode 51. It's the first episode of the year, so it's very exciting. Today's episode is about the North India-South India divide. Our guest today is data scientist Nilakantan RS, who wrote a book on the very subject titled South versus North, India's Great Divide. It's a really fascinating book because he's not really trying to tell you which side is better necessarily, but what he's trying to do is use real data to show you how certain states are performing well and others aren't. And when you really investigate why that is and the reason behind it, it reveals great insight on the nation itself, on politics, on government, and it could be applied to other nations and other uh, other regions of people and other communities. So it's, it's valuable information and the episode is really, really fascinating. So I hope you enjoy it. Also, before we start, there are several different ways to support Brown History. You can become a patron, you can subscribe to the newsletter, you can check out the store, so many ways. And if you're able to, please do support. Your contribution goes a long, long way. Thank you so much for listening and let's get started. Thank you so much for coming on and and doing this uh i read your book and it was really really interesting uh i'll be honest with you i don't really know much about the bitterness between north india and south india i don't know how each one perceives the other uh my only my only best guess is shahrukh khan's film chennai and chennai express where he goes to south india and and there's a bunch of stereotypes and and you could tell that there's some kind of gimmick here where you have a north indian visiting south indian so you think so i realized when i was watching the movie that this is kind of a a gimmick or it's a thing that uh, that means something in India, sorry. And I wanted to know, I guess my first question would be, uh, geography-wise, what is considered North India and what is considered generally South India? Right. Um, and, and before we get into that, I just want to make sure that, you know, uh, 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 you and your audience know this quite well, because, you know, um, I, I'm Tamil and uh, I guess, you know, I don't think I've ever watched a Shah Rukh Khan movie. I um mm-hmm. uh so and that's the degree for instance right like uh, you know whatever the, the 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 idea of uh, bollywood signifying india is again a um i mean i i you know i'm sure a lot of tamil people have watched you know bollywood movies but it's not normative so to speak in tamil nadu or for that matter in 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 several of southern india right, right. Uh, in several of the states in southern india right so what constitutes southern india uh, generally peninsular india that is uh, the the what used to be four states they're now five it's because andhra pradesh has been bifurcated into two so uh, what is andhra pradesh telangana karnataka tamil nadu and kerala generally constitute southern india uh mm-hmm. maharashtra is a little bit tricky because it is part of peninsular india as is orissa but orissa is a you know you, you can leave that aside but maharashtra is uh uh you know like a lot of anthropologists have said it it, it sort of shares cultural aspects with uh, uh southern india but it sort of has a language which is uh indo-european whereas all southern other southern indian states speak Dravidian languages, which are distinct from, it's not an Indo-European language. Dravidian languages are not Indo-European languages, right? They're they're Dravidian languages. It's a distinct family of languages. So for for all practical purposes, we could consider these five states to be Southern India. Right. And, And North India, what would that be considered? So North India, again, is sort of a, a, at least in my book, what I call, consistently call it is the Indo-Gangetic Plains. Right. Right. 
so uh, you know it it it, it uh, so you know for, for it's easier for us to call it that so you know the uh, but uh, you know what is punjab what is haryana is it north india well i I'm, I'm, yes in the strictest of terms yes but for the purpose of this book you know when i say indo gangetic plains or states in the indo gangetic plains i particularly mean rajasthan uh, bihar uttar pradesh madhya pradesh chhattisgarh jharkhand uh, you know the these states and you know maybe add uh, haryana and punjab to it because they are in the indo gangetic plains and maybe leave out himachal pradesh because it's a uh you know it's 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 uh it's terrain is hilly it's not particularly plains and it's uh metrics are different so yeah i i would i, I generally call these uh you know seven eight states to be uh north india uh, as to the limited purposes of my book so uh, before we get into the data just on the surface you know what mm-hmm. makes north and south different from each other because right off the bat i could see that uh one side speaks hindi and the other side doesn't uh i can see that the south is surrounded by the ocean and i'm sure that's a big factor in things even the, on the surface the architecture of the of the hindu temples are very different from uh the south from the north and i think there's a larger muslim population in the north which i'm assuming means more communal tension uh than the south but i could be wrong about that so yeah. collect, collectively yeah, but- how are they different yeah so again to the to the, to the question of muslims right like let's answer that first because it's something that uh, a lot of tamil muslims uh, <laughs> always find, find it baffling because a lot of tamil muslims are tamil speaking they're not urdu speaking right and they be muslims from the 9th century right because of the pepper trade uh, you know uh, uh, uh the arabs had like pepper trade was going on in the times of uh, you know in, uh, somewhere around middle to late 9th century so essentially you know they are either tamil or malayalam speaking people in this part of uh, 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 in this part of the country who are muslim right um so again uh, and and that 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 is not to say that there are some urdu speaking muslims who came in much later they also exist but uh, you know when, when you say a tamil muslim we generally mean a tamil speaking muslim right mm-hmm. and, and similarly a malayali muslim generally speaks malayalam they, they don't speak urdu uh, and uh, and communal tensions well communal tensions I, i guess you know human beings by virtue of being what they are and who they are uh, just need a i don't know people fight over the favorite movie stars that they have so religion is a far more potent uh divide than uh you know uh, your favorite film star or a uh, sports person right so yeah like you know communal tensions are a, 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 a social construct sorts and you know but i'm i'm not here to argue that you know they're either more or less uh, in the south than in the north but if you look at the data and the number of communal uh, uh, riots you're probably right in that you know southern india has had fewer riots but i don't know if that's the way to measure communal tensions right, right, I'm, right. i'm sure uh, that the, there's a better way to measure that uh, and in terms of uh, other aspects in terms of the differences between northern and southern india again like i said uh, the the most important difference is that southern india generally speaks languages that are belong to the uh, what, what are called dravidian languages right the, the the states speak that and uh, and northern india uh, uh, particularly uh, speaks languages which uh, belong to the family of indo-european languages right like so they, they're in some way shape or form related to each other right and 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 
which is why like you know for someone like me learning hindi is really really difficult right mm-hmm. uh which is why uh you know uh uh like like why don't you speak hindi is a very common thing that i hear in the streets of delhi whenever i you know i go to work i do anything like firstly why should i is a different question but more <laughs> immediately it's a difficult thing <laughs> that's why yeah. um so if i if i go down to south india and i would ask people you know what is the perceived notion what is what are their perceived notions of what a north indian is what what answer do you think i would get i um what is the image that north india conveys yeah what is the image i, I guess it depends on whom you ask yeah young, uh, young people so young people right like uh, i don't know like uh, 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 increasingly there are uh, because of the political climate that we live in and because there is a centralizing impulse in india and in its politics uh, what is north india is often a politically charged question these days right and and i'm sure your purpose is not that your purpose is to the general person what is the cultural construct of a median north indian person is what you're you're trying to yes. sort of ask. Yeah. And, and 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 I don't know if Shahrukh Khan, for instance, counts as that. Maybe he does, uh, or maybe you know, I don't know. Virat Kohli does. I, I I'm not sure. I'm like qualified enough to answer that question for you. And again, it probably uh, 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 is a question of class and 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 which state and what you're asking, because you know, uh, the, the, like Telangana, for instance, has had a long association with because of the Nizams and whatever with some version of, uh, you know, I wouldn't. like like an urdu dominated hyderabad was is is at the center of telangana right whereas that's not true for tamil nadu it's not true for uh, kerala it's less so for uh, uh, karnataka so on and so forth right so there isn't a there isn't a single version of that and even and you know in the in post independent india if you were to ask what is the median north indian person to uh, you know are imaginary uh, south indian person they probably give you some versions of either shahrukh khan or virat kohli to my to my knowledge i might well be wrong there historically when did south uh, south india become a collective thing and north india became a collective sort of club thing or was it never was it, is this a recent new thing or was this you know after uh, 1947 So that that that's the thing I want to sort of uh, address right like we yes. we kind of think that uh, uh, you know like these are names that we give like what is south india the like you know it's just a convenient sort of way to represent a geography with some you know common attributes such as say the dravidian languages being spoken there right but like you know and, and that is true for all of india that is true for southern india that's true for northern india what is india it's just like you know it's and that is true for most countries for that matter right like what uh, most countries in the modern sense are a historical accident right like you know it's it's a combination of uh, 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 you know some version of history some conquest some territorial ambition some cultural identity some religion through all of this in with some you know uh, whatever like the most recent war and you sort of have some version of a boundary and that becomes a modern country right like the 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 post facto identification of a country or a region within it is sort of you know it's 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 always problematic but it's convenient i grant you that mm-hmm. and, and and in that sense uh uh you know 
like the the idea of tamil country or uh, uh, the the uh, what is telugu society or kannadiga society these have been like you know very very old civilizational constructs right and they've existed for a very long time that in the modern era we sort of call them southern india like india is a 75 year old construct right like you know yeah. unless you belong to the hindu right you you wouldn't sort of assume that india has existed forever right, right. india is a recent phenomenon and uh, you know and within that southern india is like whatever like it's a it's a it's a way to connote a geography i don't think we should read more more into that am i am i asking all the wrong questions no uh, no no it's a, it's a very very useful sort of disclaimer of sorts to generally do this right and and, and therefore you could ask therefore why did you write this book called south versus north which yes. you know is in you started the damn this. title right <laughs> yes so the answer to that question is in the way in which we have constructed our states and the way in which they are culturally distinct from north for all the reasons that we have mentioned there are problems which sound seemingly intractable and that and those problems essentially stem from this set of states versus that set of states and you know for the lack of a better term we just give this convenient sort of phrasing called south versus north that's right <laughs> but it has nothing to do with geography it has to do with it i guess culture and i guess how close they're located to each other and and their historical background that they've gone through together you're right so you know for instance i might you know home city is uh, the city of madras that is now called chennai and you know it was one of the earliest places where the brits came in right like fort st george is where they kind of uh, i don't know there are several historians uh, of madras who basically say that that was the place from which they conquered rest of what is the subcontinent right now yeah be that as it may the point is that you know uh, the, the relationship and when they came in there wasn't like uh, you know uh, a very strong local uh, king or ruler so to speak right so right. so their relationship then with the locals is very different from what it was with you know whatever northern india is and 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 anyway the 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 point i'm trying to make is that you know uh the so we should be very very careful in terms of basically saying uh, you know tamil nadu's relationship with rest of india and with the rest of the other states within uh, uh, the what is uh, southern india and with the, you know the colonial power that is britain and with the rest of southeast asia and the rest of the world is very different from that of andhra pradesh is very different from that of karnataka is very different from that of kerala but the difference is that all these three or four states in southern india are all distinct from what is northern india and and i'm sure that exists within northern india as well right so like i said uh, uh all study is in some way shape or form uh, an extension of taxonomy and therefore if we if we were to do that and sort of do this taxonomy to southern india you're right in that we could put this in one bucket and that bucket is distinct and different from northern india okay so let's let's get into the data let's let's see let i mean i know that you use a lot of parameters to compare one one uh one side to the other side you use the health parameters education parameters uh you know which will make you which place will make you more money if you get a job there yeah, let's just let's just start with the health you know what is uh health wise if you're a man or a woman or you're you're starting a family or you're a, a woman giving birth what is the 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 measurements when it comes to health in certain parts of india right so 
in developing societies, right, like uh, generally accepted uh, uh, metric to measure health is what is the infant mortality rate, right? So like how likely is a, a, a child born? Uh, how likely is the child to die within the first year of its birth? So yeah. that, that's infant mortality rate, right? So if you, and the reason why we use this as opposed to most other metrics is, you know, it's, in, in developing societies, it's very, very difficult to measure per disease what is, you know, how many people got infected, what was the uh, sort of, you know, how many people actually died from it, what was the treatment protocol, etc. Right. And 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 over the past three or four years, uh, I don't have to tell you this, COVID has basically proved that that is, you know, in fact, true. It's easier to measure right. deaths as opposed to actually, you know, uh, uh, other parameters of health. Right. And, and right. tragic as it is, right, like uh, it's easier measuring uh, an infant mortality than, you know, adult mortality, because you then have to live you have to wait for a lifetime of a, uh, the average adult and the life expectancy of an average adult is like, you know, close to uh, 70 years or 70, uh, and it becomes that much more difficult. And therefore this gives you a shortened near real time version of, you know, how the particular state's uh, health is doing. Right. And, right. and also another uh, uh, factor to consider here is that a child's health does not have uh, varying degrees of uh, uh, care-seeking behavior. If a child is sick, the parents are very, very concerned and they go to a hospital to the extent that they can, right? And the amount, the kind of interventions required uh, to treat a child, again, is relatively basic, right? Except in rare cases. It's, most children die of very, very treatable diseases like dysentery or so on and so forth, right? right. So the, the point is that, you know, uh, because of all these equalizers, infant mortality rate is generally considered a good measure of how basic governance works right and 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 if you look at infant mortality rate uh, the state of kerala has an infant mortality rate uh, i in the book i cited as 7 but you know there was a subsequent uh, data released by the government which showed it at 6 right so the infant mortality rate of uh, kerala is 6 Right. Uh, the next best state is uh, 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 my home state of Tamil Nadu, which was uh, at 15. Right. And the third best was Maharashtra, which was at uh, 17 or 18, if I'm not. So sure. so you're saying if a thousand babies are born, 15 or 16 uh, will, would die. Yeah. Six in Kerala, 15 in Tamil Nadu. Would die. 18, uh, yes. Would, would die in 18 Maharashtra. And the worst performing state in that uh, was uh, the state of Madhya Pradesh, which was 48. And I want wow. to give you a couple of, that's a big uh, and, and I'll tell you what the comparison uh, comparative uh, uh, countries are. The United States has an infant mortality rate of six. Wow. Afghanistan and Nigeria uh, have infant not Nigeria, Niger uh, 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 have uh, infant mortality rates of forty eight. Afghanistan and Niger are war torn, sort of seriously troubled places, right? Yes. And and. And, and, you know, the, the, the problem is that in one country, the divergence between these two sets of, uh, 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 you know, states is as far apart as the United States, the most powerful country in this planet has, uh, and, you know, like sort of war on seriously difficult places, right? And the problem is that the union government or the government of India is increasingly trying to sort of run these two sets of states with the same policy, right? If we were to have a world government which ran the health systems of both the United States and Afghanistan with the same policy, we would laugh it off. Yeah. Except 
the government of India is trying to do exactly that. And that is the problem. Are you saying that the re- the policy is the reason why the rates are so different from each other? Or are there other reasons no, why? No, no right? I'm, I'm, uh, the, right. So historically, primary uh, health, basic health has always been like a state subject. It's not been a subject that the union government has much say over. But what has happened is that in the past couple of decades or you know in fact about three decades now what has happened is that slowly the union government has had increasing uh sort of say in 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 areas of state subjects such as health education etc and what it is doing is that it is slowly eating into states right and sort of usurping those powers onto itself and the way in which it's primarily doing is through its power of the purse because at the end of the day the uh government in Delhi sort of controls tax allocations, right? And, and, and you know, spending on all of these areas. And so what it has done is that it sort of, uh, uh, you know, come up with policies on infant and maternal mortality, right? Or, or prevention thereof, and it sort of forced states to sign up for its version of the policy, as opposed to their own versions of it, which they were running earlier, right? And that increasingly, it is resulting in greater centralization, which is resulting in the states having lesser and lesser freedom to do what they deem fit to serve their uh, citizens. And therefore, we are increasingly running like a single policy regime across, uh, you know, the various states of India and the various states of India are this diverse. So they, the reason why they are this diverse is historical and earlier states did have some leeway in setting their own policy and because their policy differed and their implementation differed is the reason why we have such divergence but given that we have such divergence now what uh, uh, the union government is doing is sort of trying to centralize that which makes no sense what was the south what was the south states doing right at the beginning that made them so successful now right if you look at it it's it's kind of fascinating right so for instance uh uh you know let's consider my home state of tamil nadu which what it did was uh you know they they had this uh program you know firstly they had an incentive policy uh it, it, they established what is called a primary health center in every village and then what they did was they basically uh, incentivized uh, uh, people who, uh, I mean, doctors who had finished their, you know, first uh, degree in uh, whatever, uh, in their study, if they went and served in these PHCs, that is primary health centers in rural areas, they, they would be given preference for uh, their admissions into postgraduate studies, right? Oh, wow. So, so that doctors were incentivized to go there. Two, they had like some, uh, every district was given a rolling shield of sorts for achieving zero IMR, right? Uh, so, you know, that was like a uh, where, where the chief minister would, would, would give them a whatever. And then like nurses were employed to walk the streets of every village where they would have a register with every woman of uh, 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 reproductive age would be entered in that. They would, you know, whatever they would, they, they, even if you married and came into that village or if you, anything thereof, right? They would basically find out if you're pregnant, they would talk to you. And if you are pregnant, they would make sure that you got four antenatal visits by a doctor, you got the required medical attention. So all of this went into that. And those nurses were given like gold rings and something else as the nurses who did that best were incentivized thereof, right? So then it was a series of incentivization schemes to achieve this end, 
right? And this right. was, you know, th- this happened right through the 80s and 90s and even before that. And, and the, the proof of that pudding is in the IMR being as low as it is, right? And, yes. and, and you know, you, you have to understand that in a democracy, the state government does what its citizens have voted it to perform. So in some way, shape or form, the voters demanded that, right? So, so there was this, uh, because, and also because, you know, most of the southern states had, you know, uh, what were, uh, what are called regional parties in India, but anyway, they're different from national parties, which is, you know, the BJP and the Congress, right? Like, it's it's true that in Andhra Pradesh and Karnataka, they yeah. do have uh, national parties, but particularly in Tamil Nadu, for instance, you know, we've not had a quote-unquote national party uh, be in government for like over 50 years now, right? So, so you know the the social democratic compact and the uh, uh, the policy agenda thereof is quite distinct from that of the national parties and it sort of was very very tailored to the local uh, society right and that society demanded this and that is the output of it in the southern states is the education better right so again just like we have imr to measure the metric of health and there are other metrics that i go through in the book you know i Please go read the book. But, uh, uh, you know, uh, for education, uh, equivalent metric would be what is called gross enrollment ratio, which is, you know, sort of how many children of a specific age group, uh, if you have total number of children in that age group as the denominator of that, how many children are actually in school in that age group, right? Like that, that, that is called gross enrollment ratio. And, 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 and that is a useful measure of how well a state is doing in education, because, you know, uh, any other metric is problematic in multiple ways because of, you know, we, it, 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 so simple question, right? If you have a far flung, uh, remote village, where you know basic access is very very difficult are you going to measure children there in terms of their learning outcomes or are you going to measure in terms of whether children are actually going to a school and is there a school in the first place right Mm -hmm. so 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 that becomes like if your gross enrollment ratio is low uh your learning outcomes become that much less important and the more important thing is to get children into school in the first place right so so given that India is where it is, cross enrollment ratio, therefore, is sort of more important. And if you measure it like that, the, the uh, you know, again, Southern India sort of measures much, much better in terms of cross enrollment ratio compared to Northern India, right? And if you see this at the time of independence, this was not true, right? This And this is true in uh, uh, health as well. In both these uh, areas, at the time of independence, Tamil Nadu, for instance, was no different from the rest of India. Andhra Pradesh or Telangana, again, were like no different from the rest of India. Uh, but today they are like, you know, again, like I said, where is 48, where is 6, where is 15, right? Like, so again, gross enrollment ratio, uh, Tamil Nadu has a gross enrollment ratio at the uh, higher secondary level, that is uh, uh, what is completion of high school, at uh, 84%, right? Which is close to OECD levels right whereas you know states in the indo-gangetic plains the states which we discussed earlier they have close to 50 percent right so it's 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 you know the difference is quite stark and why did this happen just like we had the example in uh health in education what they did was uh you know we had a, a a scheme called midday meals which is you know basically they serve children food and in, in, in areas where there is extreme poverty, 
if you are unable to feed your children, you just send them where there's food available and one such place happened to be a school. Wow. Right? So, and, 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 and you know, and, and because a lot of children were sent to school just to eat, they ended up staying to learn. So basically, if you are, if you move to the South, you have a better chance of your kid being born healthy and you have a better chance of your kid going to school and finishing school than you would if you lived in the North. But now I would have to ask, can you, can you pay for it all? So if you were somebody who's looking for work or, or trying to uh, make money, which one, uh, which, which would be better for you to live in? Exactly. Right. So again, this again is a, 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 so the way we look at it is, so how do we then measure your uh, uh, like economic opportunities, so to speak, right? Like yes. measuring uh, economy is one thing, but measuring economic opportunities slightly different, right? And, and if you measure economic opportunity, how do you measure it then becomes a question. So one useful way to look at is, you know, uh, if you look, if you consider uh what is uh, economic opportunities and sort of measure these various states, just like we did it for health and education, the metric that you want to look at are a few things, right? First, what is the contribution of what are modern jobs, so to speak, right? Like either in services or manufacturing compared to sort of what is agriculture, right? You want agriculture to be as low as possible. It's true in the West, right? Like where, uh, you know, very, very small numbers of people actually work in agriculture. Similarly, you want people, and if you look at agricultural output in India, it's dismal, right? With, with the exception of the state of Punjab, no state actually meets the global average in terms of its per hectare yield. Agriculture in India is just, you know, is disguised unemployment and disguised poverty, right? There's just no no nice really? way to say that. Yes. I didn't know that. Because, yeah, so like Punjab is the only state, if you consider rice, Punjab is the only state which produces just above the global average in terms of yields per hectare. Every other state, and if you look at, and, and Tamil Nadu comes somewhere close, right? Every other state, like, especially in the Indo-Gangetic Plains, like the Gangetic Plains are a historically fertile part of the world, right? Like, it's a storied, fertile region of the world. Yeah. Except if you look at the yields per hectare in either Uttar Pradesh or in, you know, Bihar or all of these uh, states through with the Ganges passes, it's terrible. It, you might as well just, you know... Let the land go fallow. It's that bad. Right? right. And, and yet there are millions and millions of people in this country who sort of, you know, till their land. And why do they do that? It's because they have nothing else worthwhile to do. Wow. So right? so that so that north doesn't make any money for the country. And the south makes most of the money. Right. So again, when you say not like Punjab is and Haryana, uh, they, they, they make enough money, right? And, from agriculture and from other things as well, right? Right. And, and two other sort of relatively industrialized states happen to be uh, the states of uh, Gujarat and Maharashtra. So the way in which we measure that is how do we, what is the uh, contribution of manufacturing to your state's overall output, right? So if you measure that, the states of Gujarat, Maharashtra, Tamil Nadu, all of them relatively come up there. But we have to sort of also bear in mind something very important. The purpose of any and all of this is to give people jobs, 
right? You can have one extraordinarily sort of uh, 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 automated factory, which doesn't actually employ that much people, but adds a lot of value, mm-hmm. right? And on the other side, you can have like a lot of small scale factories, right? The example of the first case is Gujarat, right? It, it has really high-end petrochemical uh, sort of factories in, in, in its state, which is why its output is really, really high. Whereas the total number of people it employs is actually, you know, roughly, uh, or the total number of factories that it has is like significantly lower than what Tamil Nadu does. Whereas in Tamil Nadu, the, its its overall output is slightly lower than Gujarat, but it, employ, it the total number of factories that it has and the total number of people it, it employs in those factories is like, you know, 2x of what Gujarat is, right? right. And I'll give you a better example uh, or a better sort of comparative metric, right? The state of Tamil Nadu has, uh, its, its population is slightly, uh, it's, uh, let's say, give or take uh, about 70 million people. Um, and it has about, had about 38,000 factories about five years ago when the data was most up, uh, current when I wrote the book. The states, uh, the, the seven states that we discussed as being part of the Indo-Gangetic range, which is Uttar Pradesh, Madhya Pradesh, uh, Jharkhand, Bihar, Rajasthan, uh, which one am I missing? Um, something. Okay, uh, these six or seven states together in the Indo-Gangetic Plains, they had a population, they, and I added up, they had a population of, of about 525 million people, right? If they were a country by themselves, they, they would be the second or third largest sort of, you know, country by population, right? And they combined together had about 37,000 factories, right? <laughs> Whereas this one state of Tamil Nadu had like slightly greater number of factories and it wow. employed a lot more number of people, right? And, and, and that again is the problem. So how does this, so to answer your original question, which is how do you measure therefore economic opportunities? The easiest way for us to measure is how much of a salary would you, or a wage, would you get in both farm and non-farm sort of jobs in, in, in those particular states? So if you look at that, like Kerala has a really high uh, uh, wage rate, but economists quite often attribute that to, you know, they, they basically say that, you know, it is a remittance heavy economy because a lot of Malayalis go elsewhere and work and send a lot of money home because of which it results in sort of wage inflation. So let's leave Kerala aside. So if you take Tamil Nadu, Tamil Nadu does not have that particular problem. So like, you know, even compared to the rich states of Gujarat and Maharashtra, Tamil Nadu has a wage rate of 2x that of Gujarat and Maharashtra, let alone that of Uttar Pradesh or other Indo-Gangetic plain states, right? So to answer your question, if you are a young person who is the median person who does not have a fancy, uh, you know, uh, education, but sort of, you know, has a high school level education and is looking to join a factory to earn a reasonable living. The point is that, you know, if you come to Southern India for states like Tamil Nadu or Karnataka, A, the probability of you finding a job is much higher because there are a greater number of factories and they employ a greater number of people. And the probability of that job yielding you a higher wage is again, much, much higher. Wow. Is there any advantage of living in the north? Um, in any of the states that 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 is obvious more you know, Punjab, for instance, if you own farmland in Punjab. Okay. Or Haryana for that matter, right? You 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 know, you you're relatively wealthy and you're set. Well, let's right? say you don't let's say you don't own property. Let's say you're just fresh. Uh again, Punjab and Haryana seem fine. It's that if you live in what are uh, Uttar Pradesh, Madhya Pradesh, Rajasthan, uh, Chhattisgarh, Jharkhand, these states, you're in some trouble. Wow. Um, 
is is the is the population size a big factor in why the states aren't performing as well as they should so it's a and 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 that that is sort of the biggest problem that india is facing right which is that you know it's a it's sort of a vicious cycle why is there high population growth it's the biggest predictor of a high population growth is uh you know you don't send enough girls to school right like the biggest predictor of a lower fertility rate is a high uh, a higher educational achievement of the girl child right and and this is true world over it's not just for india right like consider iran uh, it's a islamic theocracy right and in 1982 uh, their fertility rate was about 6.1 if i'm not wrong 6.2 greater than higher than india right uh, but right now their fertility rate is below replacement it's like you know and 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 on, the other side of the same token is that iran now has greater number of women in colleges than men right and it's true for vietnam it's true for every other society where you know fertility rate has dropped if you send girls to school they grow up to become women who have fewer children right it's mm-hmm. just like a global phenomenon right now just as we discussed in gross enrollment ratio what has happened in those northern states is that few the gross enrollment ratio is a problem for both boys and girls but it's a particular problem for girls in northern india right there are far fewer girls going to school and they staying in school right because of which what happens is that they end up having more children and because they have more children the ability of the state to build more schools and get more teachers and sort of educate them falls that much more right so it's the ability to keep up with a greater population results in them you know being not educated enough or being wealthy enough to sort of go through this ladder and therefore have fewer children right and so population if you look over the last 40 years between the uh, census of 1971 and 2011 the last census for which we have data as 2011 the 2021 census has not happened for complicated reasons one of them being covid but there are other complicated reasons uh the state of kerala had a overall population growth in the 40 year period of about 56% the state of rajasthan in the same period had a population growth of 166% wow right and yeah. that is the problem so it's growing too fast to uh, to, to be able to handle it yes and 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 unfortunately in a democracy it has other problems which we will i'm sure discuss but you know the basic problem is that northern india's population and, and a lot of people call that demographic dividend or something like that but you know all of those fancy terms that economists use are useful even only if the government has basic abilities to sort of provide basic education and health so that they become productive citizens right like if you do not do that then it becomes a demographic nightmare one of the things your book addressed was a word that you kept using which was subnationalism but i would take that as like a way of saying community uh yeah. this cuz each state has its i mean i guess the more populate the bigger the population you have the harder it is to have a a community a bond with your fellow neighbors so mm-hmm. how much does community play in in this data within each state But, yeah very much i'm 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 glad that you sort of took subnationalism to mean that right it, it it means exactly that which is that you know the idea that this is my state and therefore this is my society 
right? Is, is, is the bond that keeps us together, right? And, and if I'm paying taxes and that tax money is spent on what is quote unquote my society, I feel good about it, right? right. And that is the best case uh, sort of uh, justification for taxation, right? Whereas if I'm sort of paying taxes and my tax money is sort of spent somewhere else on which I have no control and I have no bond with those people in terms of either cultural ties or I don't have a sense of belonging with those people, it sort of seems like extraction, Right. This is what yeah. colonial administration did. Right. So so where do you draw that? And a classic example of this working really, really well is the midday meal scheme in Tamil Nadu. Right. It's a uh, it, it, it was, you know, the first iteration of it was 100 years ago under the colonial administration. The second iteration of it was sometime in the uh, 50s and 60s. The third iteration of it was what uh, happened in 1982. But the point is that, you know, the reason why the first two iterations failed was because the state did not have enough money to pay for it, right? And and, and the third iteration of it imposed a significant sales tax on uh, the citizens in order to pay for it, right? And yet, it sort of is you know, a touchstone of Tamil politics. Everybody sort of thinks that, you know, we need to feed our children in school, right? Because uh, as a sort of a moral obligation, right? Yeah. And, and that, you know, because this is our society, our children need to go to school and study. And for that, if we have to pay to, you know, get food to them, it's a, it's a very important thing for all of us, right? Like no chief minister in Tamil Nadu will ever be able to undo the midday meal scheme. They keep adding to it. Nobody will be able to subtract from it because it's a touchstone of Tamil politics, right? That is the best case scenario of what we have discussed. Yes. Right? The worst case scenario happens quite often in Uttar Pradesh, which is that, you know, any public policy is looked through the lens of caste and religion. Hmm. The moment you do that, what happens is that public policy becomes a zero-sum game between the groups, as opposed to it being a virtuous thing by itself. And the moment it becomes a zero-sum game, it never works. Okay. Right? And and, and sub-nationalism that I keep mentioning is this difference. That is, is public policy viewed through the prism of a public good that people have a stake in? Or is it viewed through the lens of a zero-sum game that people are looking to sort of garner something for their own community if the former like a, happens, like a political a party cycle. yeah if the, if the former happens it's a virtuous cycle if the latter happens it's a vicious cycle that's so interesting what how did how did the divergence happen how did how did the south states develop such a strong community whereas the north kind of uh missed out on that opportunity right so if you Again, right? Like, uh, you know, for, for instance, in Kerala, there was this IK Kerala movement in the 1870s, which is sort of, you know, a, a, and there has been like multiple, the communists came after that, but whoever did come after that, the idea of Malayali identity was very, very strong. And therefore, you know, they sort of, whatever, it, it has a storied history to it, right? In, in Tamil Nadu, there was a Dravidian movement, which again, put Tamil identity as a very, very important thing. And that resulted in some version of that consolidation of Tamils under that identity, right? I'm not trying to argue that either the Malayali or Tamil society is uh, sort of beyond casteism, right? It's not, we are not a utopia. But the point is that when it comes to certain areas of public policy, those divisions get transcended because of the Tamil identity or the Malayali identity, right? Whereas in Uttar Pradesh or in many of these Indo-Gangetic plains, that does not happen even in those areas. Like consider the name Uttar Pradesh, right? It is, uh, it is quite funny. 
it is just the uh, Hindustani version. So Uttar Pradesh was, or what that region, or some version, uh, parts of that region, used to be called United Provinces in the colonial administration, right? Yeah. So they just retained the short form UP and just gave it a Hindustani twist, which is Uttar Pradesh, right? Which points to, you know, it, it's funny, but it points to a very important thing, which is that they did not have a identity of themselves to call themselves a you know like naming themselves wasn't important enough for them whereas you know tamil nadu typically translates into tamil country it's, it's, a, it's a it's a very important thing right and it's a it's an important thing even today when the governor of tamil nadu who's like a appointee of the union government is trying to argue that the name tamil nadu should not be a thing because it implies a, a separate country or things of that nature to which all Tamil Tamil parties immediately revolted against, right? So it's mm -hmm. a, like, how do I say this? It's a, it's a very, very important touchstone of Tamil politics and identity, right? The apps, I mean, it has its own problems. I'm not trying to argue that it's the greatest thing. It, it, it is not. Whereas, but it has certain knock-on effects in terms of policy, whereas the lack thereof in states in the Indo-Gangetic Plains results in it public policy becoming a zero-sum game, which is like far worse. Yeah, that's amazing. That's really interesting. Um, you know, in the last uh, 10, 10, 15 years, Hindu nationalism, has, has that played a big part in why things the way they are? So, uh, you know, uh, again, uh, it's the same, least, I guess it's the same thing. Right, right. So, so here's the thing, right? Like, uh, Hindu nationalists, uh, at least in, 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 you know, uh, Hindu nationalists have managed to sort of crack Karnataka and they've, you know, sort of had governments there now for close to, you know, uh, on and off for 20 years now. Right. So it, it's not as if Southern India is, you know, some, even though the Tamils famously like to think of themselves as, you know, some rationalist, enlightened rationalists who will not fall for, uh, you know, uh, Hindu nationalists, at least one section of the Tamil society thinks of themselves as that. But, you know, like Hindu nationalism in India as a political movement is a well-funded organization. So, you know, all political parties that are well-funded eventually win elections. It's just like a, you know, global truth, right? So, but the point is that, uh, because of these linguistic and cultural differences, it's that much more difficult for a, 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 a North Indian Hindu nationalist to sort of make a, a inroads into the South. For instance, like take Narendra Modi. I, I hear he's a great orator in Hindi, right? I don't even know that because I don't follow Hindi and his oratory will just fall flat in Tamil Nadu, right? right. So it doesn't matter to us, right? So, so you know, th there's that. But to your question of is Hindu nationalism, therefore, A, overriding subnationalism, or B, is an alternative to subnationalism? Are those your two questions? Sure. Yes. Right? Okay. So, you know, the Hindu nationalism is in some way, shape, or form trying to be a single idea of that nationalism for about a billion people. Right? The moment you start doing that, That's it becomes... True. Like, where, 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 like, you know, like, what is the point at which you you stop this in-group homogeneity versus out-group heterogeneity, right? Like, if you, if you, you know, if 1 billion is your limit, you might as well have it for the entire world of 8 billion, right? Like, the human brain is incapable of thinking of that large a number as, you know, my society, right? It, right. it just becomes very, very difficult. 
So from the data that as 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 we're talking, it seems that the solution. I mean, it seems that the the community is is the solution, and and you have different communities, and it's it's almost as if you're saying, let each community deal with themselves, and Absolutely, and that's probably right? like, the best for everybody. Absolutely, like there is no how much ever clever a bureaucrat who sits in Delhi is, he or she is just not capable of running Afghanistan and United States with the same policy. It doesn't matter how clever you are. It is a mathematically impossible problem to solve, right? So, you know, you, you, you cannot come up with a single policy in health. You cannot come up with a single policy in education. You cannot come up with a single policy in agriculture. Like The list is endless. So the, the it is, of course, obvious that each state and even within each state, there are like wide variants within districts. And therefore, we should have district level policies. But be that as it may, the I, I hope, therefore, the point of my book is that there needs to be extreme decentralization in terms of policy making in this country. If if things your book uh, says that um, the 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 states that provide the most uh, revenue to the country are also the ones that are taxed the most, and and that tax money goes other places and not to the places that are contributing. If that keeps up, where if that keeps up, and it seems like it, it's still going in that direction. Where do you what do you think is going to happen to to the successful states? Right, and and that is one of the reasons why I wrote this book in the first place. Right, southern states are in a particular bind. Right, a like we have seen, there is extreme divergence in terms of governance outcomes, be it in health, education, economy. You know, you can just go down the list. In every conceivable sort of area of governance, there is extreme divergence between what what are the southern states and what is you know generally the rest of India, but particularly with Indo-Gangetic claims, right? Two, uh, there is extreme population divergence, right? Mm-hmm. So, like we've already seen, in, in, in because of various reasons, you know, uh, the Indo-Gangetic plains have you know have had a high population growth, whereas southern states uh, are, are, ex- are experiencing. Mu- experienced a much lower population growth in the last half century and are set to have a population decline in the next couple of decades, right? So third, what happens is that, and therefore what we've discussed is that, you know, we need extreme decentralization, et cetera, except what the union government is doing is that it is galloping in the opposite direction, right? It is trying to centralize policymaking. And the reason why it is trying to do that is precisely because the electoral pressures of the more populous regions almost demand that. And that is in turn requiring that they tax in the way in which, you know, they they they, they sort of tax the more pop, uh, prosperous regions and sort of spend that money into, uh, you know, what are the impoverished regions. Imagine that, you know, I were a, a citizen of Uttar Pradesh, for example, right? Mm-hmm. Now, what would I want? Well, my state government is doing jack and it has done jack for the past 50 years, right? right. Now, here is a here, here is a new person like, you know, why did Narendra Modi win elections? He, he went into every single constituency uh, when he makes political speeches and would say things like, you know, I'd build you toilets, I'd build you roads, I'd build you like a whole bunch of things, which ideally the state government should be doing. Right. Right. Now, a voter is not going to say, you know what? You're running for office in the union government. 
And these are what are state subjects. And because we have this enlightened idea of the state list and the concurrent list in the constitution, I'm not going to vote for you because they're like, you know, for 50 years, nobody did this. Okay, let me give you a chance. Why don't you do that, right? So this, that is, is the average voter's idea of voting for, you know, whoever comes and says that, you know, I will do ABC, right? Now, given that they have sort of promised that to the voter in these Indo-Gangetic plains, the natural thing for them to keep that voter voting for them is to sort of, you know, tax the most prosperous regions and centralize planning so that they are better able to do this in a more efficient way. And if they do that, and, you know, like good for the voter in Uttar Pradesh, Madhya Pradesh, that if, if they do that, right? But the problem is that, A, they're not doing that well because the scale of India makes it impossible for anybody to do that. But B, it comes at the cost of Southern India sort of paying for it. Yes. Right. And more importantly, what happens is that, you know, we don't we don't get say in the policy and we get taxed more. And that money gets to us a lot less because resource allocation in this country happens with population as an input parameter for, you know, distribution or rather devolution of the tax money that's collected. Right. And therefore, it becomes like a you know problem twice over. Right. And then what happens is that we have the third different problem of what is called delimitation, right? Like in every other country, what happens is that after every census, they redraw the uh, boundaries of constituencies, uh, you know, uh, 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 for instance, in the United States, for instance, after the last uh, 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 census, they redrew the uh, the US uh, Congress and, and, you know, Texas gained a lot of states, whereas, you know, some other states, I, I forget which ones, lost a few uh, Congress, uh, number of, congressman that it sends to the u.s congress right so this happens in every other country right because you know people some states grow faster some states grow slower etc in india for the last 50 years we had frozen that process and the reason why we froze that was because population control was an important policy in the indira gandhi administration right now that is set to uh, you know expire in 2026 and if that happens, what, what will happen is that Tamil Nadu, for instance, is go going to be the biggest loser of that. It'll lose seven members of parliament that it sends to Lok Sabha, right? So less representation. Yes, we lose. So over on top of losing, you know, control over our policy, over on top of losing tax, uh, that is we getting taxed more and getting less in return for those taxes, we are also likely to lose representation, which is the tool through which you fight the first two. Yes. Right. Yes. And, and, and that is the bind that Southern India finds itself in. Right. So what is the risk of this? You if, if all these three happens, you are essentially reduced to a vassal state, which means that, you know, you, you have no say in the policies that govern you. You have no say in the how much you're taxed, what you're taxed is not spent on you. And you have very little political representation. That's called a vassal state. It's like uh, it's like the British are back. Yeah. Uh, yeah, like, you know, we've replaced uh, London with Delhi. That's what we've done. And um, is there a lot of uh, tension and 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 uh, and a movement for separation from the rest of India that's happening in the southern states? Um, well, separation, again, like the politics of secession is complicated. Uh, it often doesn't end well. And therefore, you know, uh, in fact, the current... What is the DMK, right? Started in the prior to independence, 
like they've always not shied away from being a party that sort of sought a separate country for themselves, right? It's, it has a long history. But the point is that we are now at a stage where the politics of explicit secession is never going to end well for either party, which is why right. what I propose in the third, last third of the book is an algorithmic approach to extreme de decentralization, which, you know, will solve all of these problems in an organic way instead of having an explicit sort of politics of secession and sort of violence and so on. Can you elaborate on the, on your solution? Right. So because it comes to it comes down to money. Yes. So let's let's uh, uh, you know let's first uh, consider the actual problem that we have. Right. So in the last budget that the finance minister of India uh, Nirmala Sitharaman presented, she had present uh, she had spent three point four one lakh crores of rupees, a lakh crores a trillion. Right. So three point four one trillion rupees on what are called central flagship programs. Right. These are a fancy way of saying the central government is spending on what are state subjects, right? Now, what are state subjects? Like health, education, subjects, that is areas that the state government is supposed to be, you know, taking okay. care of, right? Now, That's good. Right? Now, the you know, ideally, what should happen? That money should be sent to the state governments for the state governments to do their own sort of job instead of somebody sitting in Delhi and doing that job for them, right? It results in suboptimal outcomes if people in Delhi run these programs, just as we have seen. If you, you know, run the health systems of uh, Kerala and uh, Madhya Pradesh, there's no way for you to do a good job in both these states, right? So money should have been sent to these two states to say, you know, you go do your own thing. Except, you know, because of the complicated politics that we have discussed, somebody in Delhi decides to do that. Now, the... Nobody, if... if, if ideally... Uh, and just to add to that, remember, this was 3.41 trillion. The total tax devolution from the union to the states is actually half that, right? The union government spends twice on what are state subjects than the actual money that it sends to states, right? That is the extent of the problem there, right? Now, the way in which you solve for this, so park this aside, right? Now, consider an average MP in India, the size of their constituency in terms of population is about uh, 2 million, give or take a bit. It's about the size of a small European country, right? Like that's, that many voters exist in every single constituency that a member of parliament represents, right? So one of the problems is that my vote basically has a zero transmission efficiency in terms of individual policy choices that I have, right? Like I have very little, like my vote is almost wasted if you measure wastage or use in terms of how well is my vote influencing policy de decisions of the government, right? So what I argue in the book is that much of the reason as to why we have ended up with this is because my transmission efficiency of policy choices is that poor, right? Now, so this is the modern democracy, right? Now, I give you the alternative of ancient Athens where what they did was like, you know, people would just come to the public square, discuss the issues of the day, sort of vote on the issue of the day, and sort of, you know, that's what their governing decision was, which basically has a 100% transmission efficiency, right? Like right. I vote on the issue of the day, right? And therefore my transmission efficiency is perfect. 
The problem with that situation is that, you know, famously they uh, sentenced Socrates to death by poison because he asked young people to think for themselves, right? Yeah. So it descends into majoritarian tyranny, right? So the question then becomes, what is the point of optimality between having a reasonable transmission efficiency and having the checks and balances that a modern liberal democracy has? So that we are able to achieve this decentralization in an organic way, right? Now, if we achieve that, what would happen? People in Tamil Nadu, Kerala, Punjab, Maharashtra, Gujarat would never vote for this 3.41 trillion rupees because it doesn't make sense for them. Right? right. And, and therefore, Nirmala Sitaraman will not be able to spend that. And because she's not able to spend that, that somebody needs to do that job, it would organically descend. And the other side of that token is that she wouldn't be able to raise the revenue through central taxes. And therefore, because this these jobs have moved down, the corresponding taxes have to be raised at the local level. And therefore, the, the decentralization would happen in an organic way. The algorithmic approach to that entire decentralization is what I call gamified direct democracy. I don't know if a podcast is a good sort of a medium to explain my algorithm. I'll, I'll, I'll you try can, you can you give the gist of it. Right. So the way in which it does is that, you know, it is a veto heavy system wherein we do away with the representatives and we give everybody N votes and where every time you vote as a yes, your N becomes N minus one. And every time you vote a no, your N stays at N. And, uh, you know, for a no, you're allowed to use all N votes because of which it is veto how do I say this? It gives minorities extraordinary powers to use a veto because of which it has a guardrail against the system sort of veering towards majoritarian tyranny. And this is the same system which will, uh, the power of the veto is also what I uh, argue will result in extreme decentralization because the, the as you move up the ladder in terms of greater and greater uh, area of governance, the government will be able to achieve less and less because of which powers will orga uh, organically come down to the lowest common denominator, which is that, you know, if, if I have some version of a governance in my street corner, that will become like more powerful uh, for immediate things as opposed to, you know, uh, at my city level, as opposed to my state level, so on and so forth. Yeah, it allows you to have a bigger um you're you're seen and you're heard better yes. this way yes okay uh but it doesn't but it doesn't solve the the lack of community problem but i oh, guess that's... that needs to be organic this gives you a method for uh uh, uh. so if you have that community sense of community this gives you a ability to sort of uh, uh, like 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 uh, reap the rewards of it, right? Whereas you know, no voting system is going to give you the sense of Tamil identity. Tamil identity is a priori, right? Or right. Whatever other identity there are. Right? But I guess it would allow each state to kind of figure out what the problem yes. is and and put up little incentives, just like the the lunch thing. Exactly, right? So we are assuming that Uttar Pradesh, for instance, does not have an identity. But if we allow this system of voting to take place, maybe there are a hundred other identities within Uttar Pradesh, which we are not aware of, and people will organically arrive at that with this. So this right. allows for discoverability of identities. Yes. Yeah, that would make sense. Wow. Uh, I guess that's the time we have right now. Is there anything else you would like to add? Well, um, I... I did you want to promote what your book? I did. 
yeah, yeah, A, read my book. But more importantly, what I, I tried doing was implementing this idea of the gamified direct democracy that I recommend in my book at my residence welfare association where I live. Uh, it didn't, well, I didn't succeed because entrenched uncles are not willing to give up power. But <laughs> I recommend all of you to sort of try and implement this in whatever sort of, you know, uh, smaller setting governance-like situations you find yourself in. Awesome. Uh, thank you so much for doing this. Thank you. It's been, it's been a pleasure talking to you. It's been a very enlightening. Thank you very much. Take care.